Tomorrow, some of our boys and girls are starting school for the first time. Others are starting a new school. Others are starting homeschooling this week. Um, at least one person is planning to start a new job in the week ahead. Uh, lots of new things. And whenever we do something for the first time, it can be hard to know what to expect. Uh, and we want to know what it will be like beforehand so we're not going in completely blind. Uh, and so I've been asked in, in recent days, Daddy, what was your first day at school like? Uh, which, which sadly I'm not much help because I can't remember. Uh, or, or if we know someone else who, 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 who has worked at the place where we're starting to work, we'll, we'll go and ask them, well, well, what's it like? Because it's hard going in blind. But, but it's even worse going into something with wrong expectations. And that's true when it comes to living the Christian life and sharing the gospel. That's something we, we've seen over recent weeks. If we expect everyone we share the gospel with to believe it, then we'll be disappointed. But on the other hand, if we expect that no one we share the gospel with will believe, then we'll just probably not share it. And throughout the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit has been preparing us for the fact that there will be two main reactions to the gospel. A few weeks ago, uh, we looked at the beginning of chapter 13, uh, when they're, they're in Cyprus. Uh, our theme was two reactions as the gospel breaks new ground. Then last week, we, we tried to go behind the curtain, as it were, to ask the question, Why? Why are there always these two reactions? And we saw how for those who believe it was because as verse 48 of the last chapter tells us, they had been appointed to eternal life. Why do, do they believe? Well, because they've been appointed to eternal life. And that, that implies, of course, that the opposite is true for those who don't believe, that they haven't been appointed to eternal life. Though the actual reason we're given in verse 46 is because those who didn't believe had judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. In other words, they thought they were too good for salvation. They thought they didn't need it. So we're being prepared for these two different reactions to the gospel. We're told why people will react in these two different ways. But here in this chapter, there are a couple more things that God wants to prepare us for. Uh, so if you're a new Christian, I, I trust that this will be particularly helpful. But at the same time, if you've been a Christian for a while, these are things that, that we all continually need reminded of. And what we're being told uh, above all here is that we need to expect opposition and suffering. Maybe that doesn't sound an encouraging topic for us to think about this morning. But the big concern of Paul and Barnabas in this chapter uh, and in the previous one is that those who have been converted would continue in the faith. And, and so here in verse 22 we find them strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them or exhorting them to continue in the faith uh, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. If we're not prepared for tribulations, 
then when they come, we'll think that something has gone wrong and we'll try and avoid them. But if we try and avoid suffering for Christ, then our very place in God's kingdom is at stake. And so it's vital that we're prepared for opposition and suffering. And so we're going to look at this chapter under two headings this morning, two things we need to remember about the Christian life, but spending most of our time on the first one, which is that we're to expect not just disinterest, but opposition. Expect not just disinterest, but opposition. It's one thing to expect that some people won't be interested in the gospel. But we also must be prepared that many will be hostile, they'll be angry, and they'll actively try and oppose us. That will be true simply for you as you try and live as a Christian. You don't have to do much to face hostility as a Christian. And it'll be particularly true as you try and open your mouth for Jesus Christ. In verse 1 of our chapter, the disciples arrive at Iconium. Uh, the, the, the apostles, Paul and Barnabas, who's, who's not technically an apostle, but, but he's, he's called an apostle here when he's listed with other apostles. He, he's an associate of the apostles. He, he's called an apostle here. So they arrive in Iconium. They're still in what today we call Turkey. Uh, they've travelled about 90 miles southeast of where they were at the end of the last chapter. In their day, it was part of the, the Roman province of Galatia. So, so the churches that are being established here in this first missionary journey are the same churches that Paul would write the letter of Galatians to shortly after. And when they get to Iconium, there are initial encouragements. Verse 1 tells us that they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Gentiles believed. Amazing! Now the result down in verse 27 is ultimately attributed to God uh, where they come home and they declare uh, not, not about all that they had done but all that God had done with them. So the fact that people believe it is attributed to God and yet that doesn't mean that how they went about their task was unimportant. In verse 1 the way in which Paul and Barnabas spoke is highlighted we're told that they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Matthew Henry explains that as meaning that they spoke so plainly, so convincingly, so warmly and affectionately that it was clear that they believed the things that they were talking about and that what came from their hearts was more likely to reach the hearts of their hearers. And we are specifically told in verse 3 that they spoke boldly. So a challenge here for preachers, but also I think a challenge for all of us. Because people pick up not just the words we say, but how we say them. What are the things that you talk about most passionately? Uh, is it football is it is it work is it the government is it the the small bits of the bible that that, that we might disagree with, with another group of christians over the people around us including our children 
they don't just hear what we say, but they hear how we say it. They, they pick up what we're really passionate about. And Paul and Barnabas spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed by God's grace. And yet where God is at work, the devil is also at work too. Though they were speaking in verse 2, their opponents were speaking too. The unbelieving Jews poisoned the minds of the Gentiles against them. So what happens next? Because verse 3 might surprise us. We might expect it to say, so, so they, they shook the dust off their feet and moved on. After all, they'd done that at the end of the last chapter. They, they face opposition, so, so surely it's time to, to pack their bags and go. But actually, uh, we're, we're surprised here in, in verse 3 because it says, so they remained a long time. In other words, because they faced opposition, because they faced persecution, they actually ended up staying for longer. Someone has said that at times we use opposition as a reason to escape rather than a reason to persevere. If there is a war raging and there's a, a particular area of the battle where the army is coming under intense attack, the answer isn't to pull out but to dig in, uh, to, to send reinforcements if possible, but if not, to, to dig in for the long haul. And the pattern of these opening couple of verses of this chapter have been repeated time and time again. Maybe we start a new phase of life or ministry. We have opportunities to speak to people and we see encouragements. Maybe we even see conversions. But then after a while, discouragement or opposition comes. And at that point, the big question can often be whether we're going to start looking around for a way out. Or whether we're going to dig in for the long haul. And particularly here, Paul and Barnabas dig in. And they do so for the sake of the believers here. It's not about them proving how, how, how stubborn or how resistant they are. But it's about these new converts. The, the on believing Jews were stirring up people's minds against the new converts and so Paul and Barnabas decide that they're going to dig in and stay longer because these new converts needed them. They don't just preach the gospel and then leave and even when they do leave verse 21 tells us that they come back to all the places they've evangelized in order to strengthen the souls of the disciples. They go the exact opposite way geographically that, that, that they needed to go because they cared so much about these new believers. And even then, they don't just visit them and then abandon them, because at that point, some of these new converts are ready to be appointed elders. And so they do that, they appoint elders so that God's flock in these places won't be left as sheep without shepherds. So we're not to start looking for a way out at the first stage of discouragement or opposition. Opposition normally means we're doing something right. It normally means that the devil wants to stop what's been started. 
There are plenty of churches in the UK that the devil doesn't go near because he's quite happy with them. He's quite happy with what's happening there or with what's not happening there. And we don't want that to be us. So the apostles, they don't quit at the first sign of trouble. But neither do they seek martyrdom. Neither do they seek martyrdom. And so in verse 5, when an attempt was made to stone them, they learn of it and they flee. It wasn't that Paul was scared of death. In the end, he, he would be martyred. But as long as avoiding death furthered his mission to the nations of the world, Paul would do what he could to prolong his fruitful labour. If he could escape, he would. Uh, and so here they, they escape and they go to Lystra, uh, which was 18 miles southwest. And what do they do there? Well, do they say, well, well preaching the Gospels got, got us in, into quite a bit of trouble. Maybe we should find something else to do. Well, in all these cities, what do they do? Uh, they continue, verse 7, to preach the Gospel. That's what's primary. Yes, in Lystra, as at Iconium, in verse 3, the Lord again will, will bear witness to his work with signs and wonders, or, or rather with, with one sign, but preaching is primary. And those last words of verse 7 would actually be a, a great thing to pray for ministers that you know, that they would continue to preach the gospel. Because... It seems that there are increasing numbers of men who, who were once ministers, but now they're not. Uh, a couple of whom I've known fairly well. Now even then, I don't know all the details. I, I don't know enough to say whether they were right or wrong to quit. But the point is that for whatever reason, they haven't continued to preach the gospel. And that has been a great loss to the churches, to the communities, to the denominations that they were part of. I know of other men who've gone through uh, phases of their ministry where they've been under such pressure that their number one goal has been simply to stay in the pulpit. Not because they think they're indispensable, but because whatever pressures they've been under, they've known that that's where God wants them to be. And they've continued to preach the gospel, just as the apostles do here. So pray for ministers that you know, that by God's grace they would keep going. And then in verses 8 to 10, we see a crippled man healed. And the similarities between this healing miracle and Peter's healing of another crippled man back in chapter 3 are really striking. They can't be accidental. Both men, we're told, have been crippled from birth. In verse 9 here, where we're told that Paul looked intently at this crippled man, it's the exact same word used back in chapter 3, uh, where it says that Peter directed his gaze at him. Both men, when they're healed, they, they leap up and begin walking. And both times the healing is wrongly attributed to the apostles rather than God. The two miracles are so similar that we're surely meant to see a connection. Just as Paul's sermon in chapter 13 is very similar to Peter's sermon in chapter 2. Uh, what's the reason for the similarities? Well surely it must be to highlight that 
Peter and Paul are doing the same work and proclaiming the same gospel. The first half of the book of Acts is mostly about Peter. Not exclusively, but mostly. The second half is mostly about Paul, but it is the same gospel. And as we think about this miracle here in chapter 14, it's important to remember that it's one of these signs that are talked about in verse 3. It's described as a sign. And what's the most important thing about a signpost? Well, it's what that signpost points to. And these healing signs point to what God will one day do for all who have faith in him as this man did. It's a sign here that however much our bodies may be creaking now, that whatever organs or limbs we have that that might not be functioning as they once did or, or, or perhaps that are now missing altogether, that whatever it is about us that the doctors tell us that, that they can't do anything else for it. Whatever the current state of our physical bodies. And no matter how absolutely done and useless they may feel. None of us are suffering from anything that a good resurrection won't fix. One day we will get new resurrection bodies and the healings in the Gospels and Acts, they're little foretastes of that. So this healing is a sign of what God will one day do. But it's also a sign that the age foretold in the Old Testament was now dawning. Isaiah chapter 35 had prophesied that a day was coming when the eyes of the blind would be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, then the the lame man would leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And it's happening here. It's a sign that God's kingdom has invaded this wounded world. Yes, it's still just a foretaste of what we'll experience in the new heavens and the new earth. But with the coming of Jesus, that new day is dawning. In one sense, it's already here. It's already, there's still a not yet to all of this. But the new age is here. But tragically, although the crowd see the sign, they don't see what it's pointing to. They conclude that Paul and Barnabas are gods. Zeus and Hermes were Greek gods. Zeus was Jupiter, Hermes Mercury. Hermes was meant to be the messenger of the gods and so that's what they call Paul uh, because he's the main speaker. In verse 13, someone has clearly got in touch with the priest of Zeus and said, you better get down here pronto. And so he comes down bringing animals ready to sacrifice. Maybe it's a day he's been dreaming of his whole life, this priest of Zeus. And he hears that Zeus is here in his own city. And the, the, the crowd are, 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 are getting hysterical. They're, they're so enthusiastic. But, but when Paul and Barnabas realise what's going on, they, they, they run into the crowd, they tear their clothes to show their, their distress and they do everything they can to try and stop it. In verses 15 to 17, their message is called good news. And now it's not a full gospel message. They don't get to the cross. But what they're, they're aiming to do here in the first place is to stop the people blasphemously worshipping them. 
But they do urge them in verse 15 to turn from these vain things to the living God. Which can only be done through Jesus Christ. So they're talking about sin when they're talking about these vain things. Uh, They're saying that in the past God has left the nations to walk in their own ways. But not anymore. Because the gospel has now gone out. And in light of that they needed to repent and believe it. So they talked to them about sin. But they also talked to them in verse 17 about the goodness of God. Not just the goodness of God in theory, but in real concrete terms. He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. How much of a place is there in our evangelistic strategy for talking to people about the goodness of God? Uh, to almost woo people, uh, to make them want to become Christians because our God is so good to us and he's already been so good to them and, and he's promising uh, even more goodness if only they will trust in him. As Paul would later say in Romans, it's God's kindness that is meant to lead us to repentance. And if you're, you're not a Christian this morning and you have an austere view of God It's not the God of the Bible. Uh, That might tragically be a a picture that you've gleaned from some Christians, but the God of the Bible is good. Yes, he's holy. Yes, he's to be feared. Yes, he's the one before whom the angels cover their faces. But he's also infinitely good and infinitely kind. And he shows that goodness and kindness even to his enemies. But only in this life. Because that kindness is meant to lead to repentance. And if it doesn't, then you will experience his justice. Because a truly good God cannot ignore sin. And yet even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifices to them. But such is the life of an apostle that the very same crowd who want to worship them one minute want to kill them the next. Remember, they're only 18 miles from Iconium uh, and Jews come from there and from Antioch and persuade the crowds to stone Paul. The crowd's initial response to Paul and Barnabas was hugely enthusiastic, but it was for the wrong reasons. And people might be really enthusiastic about what we say, they might be really hostile to what we say, but, but if their faith isn't in Jesus, then either way it's the wrong reaction. One minute this crowd want to worship Paul, the next minute they're throwing rocks at his head. And as far as they're concerned, they've killed him. We're told that the disciples gather around him. You know, they don't know that Paul's going to do more missionary journeys. They don't know that Paul's going to write a letter to the Galatians, that he's going to write... The other letters that we have in the New Testament, as far as they're concerned, this is it. Can you picture them standing around the the bloodied body of this fearless preacher? Perhaps the most Christ-like man they'd ever known, and as far as they're concerned, he's dead. But God still has work for him to do, and he revives Looking back in these sufferings, he writes to the Corinthians, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Uh, 
Three times I was shipwrecked. You know, once I was stoned. There's not something many people have ever said because you don't normally survive a stoning, let alone survive it and be in a condition to do a 60-mile journey the next day. Paul doesn't actually die here, but but I think his his preservation from this is miraculous. At the very end of his life, Paul would write to Timothy, Timothy, Timothy who was from Lystra, the very place he was stoned. Uh, and, and some have suggested actually that, that Timothy may have been one of these, one of those standing around Paul's apparently lifeless body, uh, and that maybe doing so forged that forged Timothy into Paul's son and co-worker in the gospel, uh, as Paul would later describe him. But at the end of his life, Paul writes to Timothy and says, You've followed my teaching, my conduct, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Iconium, at Antioch, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Timothy might have been there standing around his body. If not, he would have known people who were. And Paul writes to him and, and says, why did I get up and walk away that day? Because the Lord rescued me. Uh, and then Paul immediately goes on to tell Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And this is the point where it comes home to us. You're not likely to be stoned for being a Christian but all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Notice it does say persecuted for, for desiring to live a godly life for Christ Jesus. Not being persecuted for being cantankerous or, or rude or for being different for the sake of being different. But godly living will bring persecution. Refusing to bow the knee to the idols of our culture will bring a backlash. And by the way, if you want to know what a real Christian is, what Paul says to Timothy is a good indication. When he says, if anyone desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Because deep down, do you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus? Is that what, what motivates the decisions you take? Or are your desires no different from the desires of unbelievers? Because your desires are, are, are a better gauge than your actions. We, we can act the way other Christians act and we can deceive others that way, but, but God knows our desires. So there's a challenge there, but there is an encouragement too. Because if you feel like a failure as a Christian, and I think we all do at times, if you feel like a failure as a Christian, take heart that if you genuinely desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, then, then where does that desire come from? Because it doesn't come from Satan. If you genuinely desire to live a godly life for Christ Jesus, that desire can only come from the Holy Spirit. can only come from God. Richard Sibbs once said, We shall be esteemed by God to be what we love and desire and labor to be even if the in practice 
At times we fall short. We shall be esteemed by God. We shall be, be seen by God to be what we love and desire and labour to be. We are what we love to a great extent. So firstly this morning, and it's really our main point today, expect not just opposition but hostility. But, but secondly, and a lot more briefly, Realize that if you're not growing as a Christian, your salvation is at stake. Realize that if you're not growing as a Christian, your salvation is at stake. Now, I do want to end on an encouraging note today. Uh, I think this chapter ends on an encouraging note, uh, as though we should end on an encouraging note. But it is important, uh, just before we get there, to counter a commonly held assumption about Christianity. Uh, and that is that someone can make a profession of faith at, say, 7 or 11 or 18 or 25. And then they can drift through the rest of their life with no real interest in the things of God. But, but they'll be okay because once saved, always saved, right? And yet nature itself tells us that living things grow. If a plant or a tree isn't growing, then it's either dying or dead. Now Jesus is patient. He's so patient. He told a parable about a man who had planted a fig tree but but came to look for fruit and there, there was none. And he told his gardener, for three years now I came seeking fruit in this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. But the gardener says, give it one more year. I'll I'll dig around it. I'll put manure on it. Then if it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So three years where fruit has been expected and there's no fruit. But the gardener says, give it another year. Give it another year. We don't bear the fruit that we should. But Jesus is so patient with us. But twice in these two chapters, we're reminded that it is possible to start off in the grace of God and not continue in the grace of God. Back in chapter 13, verse 43, Paul and Barnabas urged the new converts to continue in the grace of God. Here in verse 22, they exhort them to continue in the faith. Yes, you've started out in faith and in the grace of God, but are you going to continue in it? Sometimes if you're, if you're doing something on the computer, particularly if you've had to, had to log in and get a security code to log in and, and you leave it for a while and you get distracted and then you come back to it, you'll find a message on the screen saying, do you want to continue? And there might even be a little timer counting down and if you don't respond, you'll be logged out. And some of you may be facing that question spiritually at the moment. Do you want to continue? You can't live the Christian life on the fumes of past experience. You cannot live on fumes, no matter how dramatic that past experience may have been. So so that's the warning that it's possible to start off in the grace of God. It's possible to start off in the faith and not continue. But I do want to finish this morning with encouragement. And that encouragement is that God has given you everything that you need to keep going. Uh, Which is actually a a theme we'll come back to this evening, God willing. But here these new converts aren't left to themselves. 
In verse 21, Paul and Barnabas returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples. And there's two reasons why that might surprise us. If you'd been stoned in a particular place and left for dead, how keen would you be to go back there? So that's one reason not to go back. He's just been stoned there. And geographically, it also doesn't make any sense to go back there. Uh, and you can maybe see this on your map as they end up, they end up there in Derby. Uh, they end up there in Derby, and they want to go back to Antioch, uh, not Pisidian Antioch, which is over here, but, but Antioch, uh, where, where they started out. Uh, and so, so to get back there, they, they can go over land, they can go down, they can get a boat. They're not that far from going back home. But actually, they go a complete loop the other way back, uh, a complete loop. Uh, it would have meant not just going back where they were stoned, but again that dangerous trip through the Taurus Mountains, which they'd already done once. So we should be able to look even at the maps in our Bibles and see the grace of God. Because such is Paul's God-given concern for these new converts. And as they go back through all the cities they've been, we're told that they strengthen the souls of the disciples. And how did they do that? Well, through the only means that they had, through ministering the Word of God. No doubt they did it both publicly and from house to house. Uh, we see that Acts 5, Acts 20, it's the apostolic pattern. Why should you make church a priority, sitting under the Word of God? Why should you become a member of a church where you get regular pastoral visits and have the Word of God ministered to you? Because it's about your soul being strengthened. Yes, this whole chapter, verse 27, it's about what God has done. It's about what God has done. And it's a, it's a beautiful way to describe the chapter. Uh, Paul doesn't say, well, hey, I'm going to do a, a PowerPoint presentation on my first missionary journey. No, he says, this is about what God has done through us. Paul and Barnabas, they don't come back and make themselves the heroes of the story. But God does minister his grace through flesh and blood, people bringing the word to us. God ministers his grace to us primarily through flesh and blood, people bringing the word to us. And even when they were no longer physically present, Paul continued to minister the word to these churches. He went home and wrote the letter to the Galatians, which they, which they would have heard, read publicly as they gathered together with other believers. Without the ministry of the word, your soul will not be strengthened and your salvation will be at stake. Make the ministry of the word a priority. And we do have an opportunity at this time of year that we, we don't have very often. We, we have a new school year starting. It will affect us, many of us, in, in one way or another. Others are starting a new season of life, a fresh start to some extent for many of us. Uh, tonight I'm starting a new series on a much neglected book of the Bible that another apostle wrote in order to strengthen the souls of believers. Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep. And, and he did that, uh, one way he did that was by writing those two letters. In a few weeks, God willing, we'll, we'll start a new evening study going through the shorter catechism summary of the Bible. 
And by God's grace, those are means through which your soul can be strengthened. There's a great promise at the start of the book of Philippians that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. But how does the Lord do that? How does he bring that work to completion? Well, he uses means. He uses the ministry of the word. And not only do you need the word, but your brothers and sisters in Christ need you. They need your presence, your participation, your encouragement, and you need them. We do have an opportunity at this uh, stage of the year to nail down what our priorities will be. And let's prioritise our souls. The Lord's Day is a day of rest, yes, but it's rest for the purpose of worship. A whole day to be devoted to God. And if you do that, I promise you will not regret it. You will not regret devoting one whole day to God each week. And then just in closing this morning. Yes, expect not just disinterest but hostility. Yes, realise what's at stake if you don't keep growing as a Christian. But above all, keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Did it ring any bells here when you have the same crowd who, who one minute they're, they're enthusiastically welcoming Paul, the next minute they're, they're trying to kill him? Well, well, the same thing happened to Jesus, didn't it? Except they actually killed him, the same crowd that, that, that shouted Hosanna, they would shout crucify him. Paul was prepared to die for these new converts if that's what it required. But while he could face stoning for, for them, only Jesus' death could actually save them. All the way through, Paul and Barnabas want to keep the focus on God. They declare all that God had done with them, how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And if they were here today, they would say, keep your eyes on Jesus. Above all, that's how you will face opposition and be able to endure. And above all, that's how you will keep growing as a Christian. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Amen. We sing in closing from Psalm forty, Psalm one four five, Psalm one four five, the A version, page three five three. Singing verse ten to the end. Uh, Psalm one four five, the A version, page three five three, and starting at verse ten. Verse ten talks about God's goodness to all on earth. Believers or unbelievers, just as Paul tried to tell these idol worshippers in in Lystra about, your open hand will satisfy the wants of all on earth who live. But in in verse 11, he he, he is near, uh, he is particularly near to all who call on him. And in verse 12, he fulfills the wants of all those who fear him. So yes, God is, he's good to all men, uh, but he, he is has a particular relationship with his people. And ultimately, at the end of verse 12, those who don't bow the knee to Jesus Christ or those who tragically start the Christian race but don't finish it will be destroyed. But by God's grace, that doesn't have to be anyone here today. And so we can, in verse 13, with our mouths to the Lord, speak and give him praise. And with all who live his holy name, bless forever and always.
So Psalm 145a, 10 to the end, we'll stand to sing praise. <laughs>